theyeshiva.net. What we want to focus today on Be'ezer Hashem is the term Matonos Le'evyoinim. Matonos Le'evyoinim is translated as gifts to those who are poor, to those who are destitute. And it is one of the central mitzvahs of Purim that the halacha obligates every Jew to give Matonos Le'evyoinim which is a plural form, a plural term, meaning at least two poor people, two of Yainim. I give matonois, I give gifts to each of these poor people. Where Mishloyach Monois is Ishlire Ehu, the obligation is to give Mishloyach Monois to each person, his friend or her friend, one friend, not Re of, but Re Ehu. Only to one person, where Matanas Lavyanim is minimum two people, but of course one could and should add as much as they can. Yet, what is unusual about this term is usually the term for Matanas Lavyanim throughout the year is called Tzedakah, which is really what Matanas Lavyanim is. It's charity, it's giving charity to somebody who needs it. It's not like Shmeshloyach Manas. Shalach Manas is not helping the poor. Shalach Manas is an exchange of gifts of foods representing love and unity and friendship and camaraderie. It's to a friend. A friend may be very wealthy, may be very successful. But when I give them gifts of food, I fulfill the mitzvah of Shalach Manas. Matanas Lavyanim is particularly and exclusively to those who are needy. Evyoin is somebody who's destitute, somebody who doesn't have anything. And therefore, Matanas Lav is really a gift of charity. It's tzedakah. But on Purim, we don't call it tzedakah. On Purim, the Megillah defines it as Matanas Lav as a gift. And it's an important distinction. Because tzedakah is not a matana. Charity is not a gift. Matana means something else than tzedakah. You might say, what's the difference? All charity is a gift. You're giving a charitable gift, a gift of charity. The Gemara says, the Talmud says in a few places, Baba Metzi and other places, Ilav the Ovid Matanta. Meaning, a gift is always reciprocal on some level. I don't just give a gift out of the blue. If somebody did not do me a favor, if somebody has not benefited me in some way, if I don't feel some debt of gratitude to somebody, some appreciation, some sense of commitment, of love, of friendship, something I get from this person, I don't give a gift. Who do we give gifts to? You give a gift to a good friend. You give a gift to a spouse. You give a gift to a child. You give a gift to a parent. You give a gift to an employee, to an employer, to a colleague, to a partner, to somebody who's simcha you're coming to, a bar mitzvah, a wedding, and so forth. But there is a relationship. On the anniversary, you may buy an anniversary gift. Or on the birthday, you might buy a birthday gift. You want to show appreciation. Appreciation for what? Appreciation for what they do for you. Appreciation for what you do for each other. An appreciation, it's something that is reciprocal. A gift is not born in a vacuum. Why are you giving me this gift? Oh, I saw you this morning, I decided to give you a gift. By definition, that is the meaning of a gift. The Gemara puts it, Ilav the Ovid Naichel 
If not for the one who received the gift, doing naichel anavshe, giving me something that is meaningful. Naicha means like menucha, give me something that's, that's meaningful to me, that's beneficial for me. I would not give a gift. So either I owe you a debt of gratitude, either I want to show you appreciation, or even I have a special love to this person. This person does something for me that triggers love and I want to show it through a gift. What about matonis lav yoinim? Matonis lav yoinim has nothing to do with a particular poor person who has given me something, even a favor, or said something nice to me and therefore I'm giving them a gift. Matonis lav yoinim amporim is connected to any single poor person. I may know him, I may not know him. I may be acquainted with her, I may not be acquainted with her. It could be a complete stranger. Rashi says the definition of an evyoin is from the word ta'ev l'chol davar, meaning he or she craves everything because they're completely destitute. Anything I can give them already means something. In other words, the person actually has nothing. They couldn't have given me anything even if they wanted to. So it's actually the antithesis of a gift. A gift is coming as a, as a token of reciprocity because of what you've given me. The true Evian actually has nothing to give. And thus I'm giving charity to this person. Why then does the Megillah decide to change the normal term that we use throughout Yiddishkeit for charity called tzedakah? And here we call it not tzedakah. We could have said tzedakah le'evyoinim. Would have been very clear. Charity for the poor. Or just tzedakah. Tzedakah by definition is to poor, not to rich. In fact, somebody who's not supposed to take tzedakah and takes tzedakah, it's a wrong thing. Tzedakah is made for a person who cannot make ends meet, who cannot cover their bills. So tzedakah would have been a perfect term. We call it matonis le'avyoinim. Now you might say, there's a famous expression of chazal, more than the giver does for the taker, the taker does for the giver. Just as the wealthy person, the giver does a benefit for the poor person, it's also the other way around. So you could say, there is give and take. I'm not only giving, I'm also receiving. But that's still not like a matana. Because by a matana, by a gift, first I receive and then I give the gift. I work for you, I want to show appreciation for you. I'm a friend of yours, I'm a neighbor of yours, I'm a family of yours. I want to show appreciation after what you have given me, maybe for a year or for a lifetime or for a few weeks or something special you did for me or you did for my family or you're such a good neighbor and you put up, uh, you put up my family for our simcha and I want to show appreciation so I buy you chocolate next Shabbos. But the appreciation comes after what you have given me. The gift follows what you have given me. Here it's the other way around. Here we're saying, as a result of giving tzedakah, the poor person also does something for you. It's still not the same concept of matana. If the right word for tzedakah is really a gift, so why all year do we call it tzedakah? And only Purim do we change the term from tzedakah to matana's love. Now at surface you might say, what's the difference? The concept is the same. Who cares if the expression is tzedakah? Who cares if the expression is matana's love? The point is the same. Call it a gift, call it charity. You don't want to call it a gift because you get, didn't get anything before. It's completely inspired from yourself. You're not reciprocating what he, what he or she has given you before. Fine, don't call it matanas lav Why are we making such an issue of this? But the truth is that in Torah, the principle is that sometimes 
from small nuances and small details, larger universes unravel. Deep existential truths and ideas emerge not only from large discussions, but also from small little details and nuances in Yiddishkeit. It's not unlike the human organism in which every cell contains the DNA of the entire organism. Every cell essentially has within it a copy of that which really makes up the entire body. In every genome, as it's called, you have a reflection of the entire organism. 50 trillion cells in a body, give or take. And each cell, each minuscule, tiny cell, has within it the picture, the code of the entire body. Zois Adam. Torah is compared to a human being. Every prat of Torah, in every cell of Yiddishkeit, you can ultimately find, discover, and reconstruct all of Judaism. So sometimes the smallest details mirror the most cosmic, profound truths of Judaism. It would be like at night you have a cup of water and the moon is reflected in the cup of water. The entire moon is reflected in the cup of water. The entire sun you could sometimes see in the water. Not to say that this, this cup of water is the size of the moon, but sometimes the entire moon in its totality can be mirrored, can be appreciated, can be seen through the prism of this cup of water. In this nuanced change from the word tzedakah to the term atanas we really have conveyed one of the profound, unique components of the holiday of Purim, and therefore the matanas lavyanim, the gifts to the poor that we give on Purim. In order to appreciate this, I'm going to change the subject. We have in Judaism leap years. Every 19 years, we have seven leap years. Our calendar is divided into units of 19 years. Don't shut down yet. You'll understand everything. You're hearing years, units, sleep years. You think I'm going to astronomy and cosmology. Relax, relax. Every unit, our calendar is divided into units of 19 years. Every 19, every set of, like sets of 19 years. Every set of 19 years has 12 regular years and 7 leap years. 12 and 7 makes up 19. 12 regular years means years that are comprised of 12 months. 7 leap years means years that are comprised of 13 months. A leap year in Judaism is called a shanam uberes, literally a pregnant year, quite literally, because the year is pregnant with another child, with another month. It has another whole month, another four weeks, 30 days added to that year. When we have a leap year, it's always in the month of other. We never add another month in the calendar. It's always the month of other has other rishon and other sheni. Every few years is going to be a leap year. Again, within a unit of 19 years, you'll have seven leap years, which means every two to three years, we will have a second other, a leap year. When there are two others. When do we celebrate Purim? The second other. The first Purim of the first other is called Purim Cotton. Purim Gadol, the real Purim, or the ultimate Purim, is always other Shani. 
Why is that? So there are reasons given. The Yerushalmi says, Talmud Yerushalmi says, that the original Purim, the original Purim that happened the first time around was a leap year. It was a leap year. And the miracle happened therefore in other Shani, in the second other. It was a leap year. Now there's a big discussion exactly what that means. If it was initially a leap year, if it became later a leap year, after Haman made Xer, it became a leap year. If Haman made Xer on the first other. But according to our sages, that other was a leap year. And that is significant. Why do we have leap years? Why is it that every few years we decide to add a whole month? What's the problem? Is it that we want to delay the summer? Is it we want more of the year? What is it that drives our calendar to establish an extra month? The answer has to do with one detail. You have heard this when you grew up, but it's possible that when you heard it the first time, it sounded confusing. And therefore, whenever you hear it again, you have a traumatic reaction. So I'm going to tell you that this time it's going to be different. You'll actually get it and you'll see that it's very interesting. And this has to do with a completely different story. The Gemara in Tractate Chulin, page 60b, tells the following story. When you read the story of creation, it says that on Wednesday, God created the heavenly bodies, what's called Tzvah HaShamayim, the planets, the galaxies, the stars, and of course, the solar system and the lunar system. The solar orbit and the lunar orbit, the sun and the moon, and everything involved with the sun and the moon. This was the first Wednesday of creation, the fourth day of creation. The way the Torah describes it is, Hashem created Shnei Ma'iris Agdoilim. He made the two great luminaries, the sun and the moon. Later the Pasuk alternates, alters its description, and says, the great luminary the sun created to illuminate the day. And the small luminary, the Mar HaKat and the moon, to give us light during the night. And Chazal, ever sensitive to nuance, and their antennas always up, to decipher and to detect nuanced changes in the text of the Tach, are astounded by this sudden change. First they were two great luminaries, Shnei Ma'oris Agdoilem, and then the titles shifted. One became great and one became small. And thus, Reish Lakish tells us in Tractate Chul in the famous tradition. The tradition is that when Hashem created the sun and the moon, He created them as equals. They were two great luminaries. The sun and the moon were equals. Twins. And the moon came to the Rebbeinu Shalom. The moon came to Hashem and said, This is unjust. Why? It's impossible to have two kings using the same crown, wearing the same crown. There has to be one king. You can't have two kings with the same crown. You can't have two people running the show. You can't give them both equal power. You need one leader. You need one chef to run the kitchen. Too many spoil the pot. You need one CEO, you need one director, you need one commander-in-chief, you need one general. You need one person running, making decisions. You can't have two kings having the same crown. 
They can have different types of crowns, but the same crown you can't give to two kings. It's just impossible. So God tells the moon, You're right. Go diminish yourself. (laughs) Put on a different crown. That crown is not for you. You're right. Become a different type of creature. And hence, the moon becomes the moon that we know. First of all, it's much smaller than the sun. Even more importantly, it has no light. The moon is dark matter. It reflects the light of the sun. But the light of the moon is not independent. It's not autonomous. The moon doesn't own the light. It's the, mo- it's the light that the moon reflects from the sun, which is why, of course, the moon waxes and the moon wanes. Because the moon doesn't have its own light. And therefore, it depends on where its position is vis-a-vis the earth and vis-a-vis the sun is how much light we get to see from the moon. So what we call Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of the month, when the moon is invisible, it's basically because the earth and the moon are in the sun, are all, so to speak, in the same angle. The moon stands between the earth and the sun, and the half of the moon, we can only see half of the moon because it's a ball, so we can only see 180 degrees. And the 180 degrees of the moon that is reflecting the sun, is on the other direction, it's not facing the earth, so therefore when we look at the moon, we see nothing. And then the moon starts moving away slowly, slowly, so we see a little sliver. And then it moves further and further and further, 180 degrees later, now the earth is between the moon and the sun, and we have this beautiful moon on the 15th day of the month, the 15th night of the month. And then the moon starts getting closer to the sun, and it begins to wane and wane, until it disappears completely. So the moon became a whole new entity, no light of its own, reflecting only the light of the sun. And the moon turns to Hashem and says, just because I said something true, therefore I have to diminish myself? Why me? Just because I pointed out the obvious, two kings can't wear the same crown. That's why I am penalized? So Hashem tells the moon, Don't worry. The Jews will establish their calendar based on you. Their months will follow your orbit. Indeed, those are our months. The beginning of our month is when the moon begins its orbit once again. Its invisible orbit once again. We call it the birth of the moon, Rosh Chodesh. When? The moon cannot be seen because it's actually in direct contact with the sun, so to speak. It reflects the sun, and that half that reflects the sun, we cannot observe, and that's our beginning of our month. And it continues, the orbit of the moon is 29 and a half days and change. That's our months. That's why some of our months have 29 days, some of our months have 30 days, because the orbit of the moon doesn't end after 29 days, it doesn't end after 30 days, it ends after 29 and a half days and change. So that's why we have to split it up. Some months are 29, so we're a little behind. Some months are 30 days, so we're a little ahead. And between the months, we even it out. Two months, Cheshven and Kislev are sometimes this way, sometimes this way. And that's how we more or less even it out. So the moon says one second. But their calendar will still be following the sun because they're still busy with the seasons, which is based on the sun. So Hashem says, the greatest of Jews will be called by your name. When we want to describe Yaakov Avinu, the prophet Micha says, Miyakum Yaakov, the prophet Amoy says, Miyakum Yaakov ki katanu. Yaakov is small. David, the Pasik says in Shmuel, David hu akatan. David is the small one. You see, Yaakov, David, they're all defined by you. They're called the katan, not the gadol. 
and the moon is not appeased. The moon is not satisfied. And the Talmud says Hashem tries to appease the moon, tries to make it feel better, but to no avail. And when Hashem sees that it cannot satisfy the yearning of the moon, what does He say? You know what He says? He says, Haviyu alai kapara the Gemara says. God says, I need an atonement. I need to atone for what I did because I diminished the moon. And that is why there is one sacrifice that was brought in the Holy Temple once a month. And it's unique. It's the only sacrifice in the whole Torah that it says that this is being brought, being brought for whom? For Hashem. La Hashem Chatas. This is a sin offering, kevayachal for whom? For the Rebbe Neshalayim, for God. Why? Why does he need an atonement? Why does he need a carbon? What did he do? He diminished the moon. I need a kapara, I need an atonement for making the moon small. And that's why the two great luminaries morphed into one large one and one small one. End of the story. And I want to ask you today, how do you make sense of the story? For starters, what is the definition of a mitzvah? And what is the definition of an aver, of a sin? The most basic definition without making this complicated is, a mitzvah is doing something that Hashem wants. What is a sin? Violating Hashem's will. How can Hashem do a sin? (laughs) If the definition of a sin is you're not doing what God wants... Hashem diminished the moon. He told the moon, go diminish yourself. What do you mean it was a sin? He needs atonement. Who did he sin against? Himself? He decided to do it. So he wanted to do it. If he wanted to do it, it's not a sin. He says, no, I need an atonement. I need to atone from what? My mistake? My error? My tramp? What makes it a mistake if you did it? (laughs) By definition, if God did it, it's not a mistake. It's not a sin. It's already a mitzvah. And have a better question. God, instead of bringing atonements for yourself every month, I have a much better idea. What's the better idea? Imagine you hurt somebody every single month, and every month you bring a new carbon. Isn't there a better idea? What do you think is a better idea? Why don't you fix what you did? (laughs) If you really think it was such a bad idea. So fix it. I don't understand. Is the moon right or is the moon wrong? If the moon is right, you should say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Let's just go back to status quo. If the moon is wrong, and it should be diminished, so great, so you don't need an atonement. There is like a split here in conception. When we read the story in the Gemara and Tractate Chulin, like whose side is he taking? Whose side are we supposed to take? On one hand, he tells the moon to go diminish itself because it's complaining. And then when the moon starts complaining about the fact that it lost so much because of its complaining, he comforts the moon. He says, you have a good point. That's why the Jewish calendar is going to follow your orbit, not the solar orbit. The Western calendar, the Roman calendar, follows the solar orbit. We don't follow the lunar orbit. And this moon is still not happy, and God says, okay, Yaakov will have your name. David will have your name. Jews will be compared to the moon. They will follow the moon. They will count their months according to the moon. Their greatest tzaddikim will be similar and compared to the moon. And the moon is still not satisfied. Hashem says, you know what? You got a point. I need a sacrifice. I need a carbon. 
Hashem Chatos, and that's why every Rosh Chodesh, there was a carbon brought in the Beis Hamikdash, a goat. And this was an atonement, so to speak, for whom? For the Rebbeinoi Shaloylam. It's almost strange. How do we even say these words? An atonement for him. Why? I diminish the moon. And every month again, when? On Rosh Chodesh, because that's the day when you most dramatically and palpably feel the void of the moon. It's invisible. The sun never becomes invisible. The moon becomes invisible because it doesn't have light of its own. So even though it's facing us, we can't see any light because it needs the moon's light. So Rosh Chodesh, we can feel. Rosh Chodesh is the first day of our months when you don't see the moon. Rosh Chodesh, we can feel the void. We can feel the lamentation of the moon. We can hear it. And hence, that's the day we brought the goat offering, the Torah says in Parshas Pinchas, to bring a special goat offering on Rosh Chodesh, La Hashem, for the Rebbeinu Shalom, for God. How do we understand this? Now we have to remember one more exhibit, exhibit number three, exhibit number four. You with me? Exhibit number one was Matanas Yainim. Exhibit number two was it was a leap year. Exhibit number three is the story of the sun and the moon and the moon complaining and we're not sure who's right and who's wrong. And finally, exhibit number four is this. We have a problem in Judaism. The Romans didn't have it. The Muslims didn't have it. The West doesn't have it. And the religious calendars didn't have it. Only the Jews have it. And that is, it's called a split personality in our calendar. They say the definition of chutzpah is, you come to a therapist because you have a split personality, and you want a group discount. <laughs> but in, in the Jewish calendar, we have a split personality. And I'll explain to you what I mean. You see, the sun and the moon don't get along. What do I mean they don't get along? They follow different schedules, different patterns. Are you married to such a person? You sleep by night, he sleeps by day. You like to wake up early, he likes to wake up late. You want all the Venetian blinds to be closed, he wants them to be open. You like the light off, he wants the light on, or conversely. You like Milchika restaurants, he likes Fleishiks, or conversely. Usually not conversely. Or whatever the situation is, those are the small stuff. And then are the big stuff. You both orbit, everyone has an orbit, but it's different orbits. The sun and the moon don't have the same orbit, and they're dramatically different. The orbit of the moon around the earth takes 29 and a half days. Whoops! This way, 29 and a half days. Done! I'm back to square one, I start over again. The sun also orbits the earth. Or if you want to do it in the modern model, the earth orbits the sun. But that takes 365 and a half days. That takes much longer. Yes, the sun is also much further, 93 million miles away from the earth. But the orbit of the sun is 365 and a half days. The orbit of the moon is 29 and a half days. That's a very different orbit. To put it in simple words and quote to Evan Ezra, the moon has no years and the sun has no months. You get it? The moon has no years. The moon has only months. The sun has no months. The sun has only years. 
The Roman calendar, the American calendar today, the Western calendar, is based on the sun. We have years. 365 days makes up a year. February 1 to February 1 is going to be approximately 365 days. Count it. Because that's when the solar orbit ends and a new orbit begins. So why do we have months in the English calendar? January, February, March, April? These are artificial months. You take 365 days, you split it up into 12 units, and you give people months, simply for convenience. Now take the Muslim calendar. The Muslim calendar doesn't follow the sun, it follows the moon. And the moon only has months, the moon has no years. And therefore, why do they have years? How do they have years? They take the months, they multiply them 12 times, and they create an artificial lunar year, which is of course not 365 days, 354 days. If you take a lunar month and you multiply 12 times, you end up with 354 days, which means that the lunar year ends 11 days before the solar year, which is why if your birthday is on Purim, and Purim happens to be February 15th, why the next year is Purim not February 15th? You know when it's going to be? It's going to be 11 days earlier. Why? Why can't I always have my Purim February 15th? Huh? If it's a leap year. I'm not talking about a leap year now. The answer is, because to get from Purim to Purim, how many days are you counting? 354 days. But to get from February 15th to February 15th, how many days? 365 days. So that's why the next year your birthday is going to be February 4th. You got it? You just learned now why you could never figure out when your birthday is. You see that? But here's our problem. The Muslims don't care. We have a problem. I'll tell you our problem. In other words, I'll put it if you want, if you want to do this experiment. If you have a good, nice, sunny porch, make us, and it's, it's, uh, uh, it's a nice morning, Rosh Chodesh Tamas. And you make, and the sun is casting its light on a particular point in the porch or on the wall, and you make a scratch. And the next year, Rishchaydish Tammuz, you will not see the light there. You know why? Because you're going to have to wait another 11 days. The sun is not back yet. Just because it's the same date in the Jewish calendar has nothing to do with the sun. You still got to wait 11 days. The moon already finished its year, the sun is still busy. Because the moon doesn't have a year. The Muslims don't care about this. We do. When is Ramadan? Anybody here does Ramadan? You fast for 30 days Ramadan? You do Ramadan? Okay. I wish I would. What should I tell you? <laughs> there was once a woman who came out of her castle in Beverly Hills. In Beverly Hills. And she sees this fellow, a homeless fellow goes over to her and says, Ma'am, 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 I haven't eaten in three days. In three days I haven't eaten. She looks at him she says, I envy your willpower. That's <laughs> what it calls being out for lunch. You're in your own world, okay? Which we'll soon see how it connects here. It's not stam a joke. Ramadan is sometimes in the winter, and sometimes in the summer, and sometimes in the autumn, and sometimes in the spring. It's never the same season of the year. Why? Because they just deal with the moon. That's what they deal with. We have a problem. The Torah says that Pesach has to be in spring. Spring, summer, autumn, winter are based on the solar orbit. 
They're based on the relationship between the light of the sun and planet earth. If our months are following the moon, our Pesach is never going to be in the same time. One year it's going to be in the spring, but the next year what's going to happen? Pesach is going to be 11 days earlier. That I don't care about. But the next year it's going to be 22 days earlier. And the next year it's going to be 33 days earlier. And a few years later it's going to be 6 months earlier and Pesach is going to be in the cold of winter. And that can't be. So every 3 years we add 4 weeks. We add 30 days. Each year the moon falls behind 11 days. Two years it falls behind 22 days. Three years it falls behind 33 days. I put in an extra month into our calendar and I give time for the moon to catch up and hence my Pesach is going to be delayed by a month and I do this continuously. Once, it, But it's never still completely even. You know why? Because I put in an extra month. Now the moon is three days ahead. 33, right? What happens? I put an extra because it's 11, one year, 22, and then 33. So if I wait for three years, the moon is still three days behind. If I put in after two years, the moon is now ahead. Once in 19 years, they straighten out. And that's why in once in 19 years, your English birthday and your Jewish birthday will be on the same day. Thank you. Okay, so don't sue me. If it's after Shkia, yeah, don't sue me. Thank you. You teach this? You think about these things, okay? You think about these things, fine. So now, we understand why we have to have leap years. We need to have our moon catch up to our sun. And yet we will not simply make our calendar simpler. Follow the sun, follow the moon. No, you got to follow both of them. And once this fight happened between the sun and the moon, there's always a struggle because they're different orbits. The explanation in all of this is as follows. The sun and the moon represent two different dynamics in life. And now we have to be introduced to spiritual thinking. Spiritual thinking is not like physical thinking. Physical thinking is either or. Spiritual thinking is never about either or. It's two dimensions of the same reality. So when we speak about the moon here, what we're being introduced here is to a very subtle distinction. And I want to explain to you what I mean. The Pasuk says God made two great luminaries. Then it says he made a big one and he made a small one. So the Gemara explains initially they were great. Later the moon complains. Hashem said becomes small. It becomes small. It continues to complain. It remains small but Hashem feels bad. And he feels that he needs atonement for this. So we're trying to figure out who was right. If the moon was right, let God correct it. If the moon is wrong, Hashem doesn't need an atonement. So we have to appreciate here that there's a subtle message that is being conveyed. And the subtle message, of course, is that the moon and the sun are very different from each other. Of course they're different. The sun is the sun and the moon is the moon. That was brilliant. The sun is the sun and the moon is the moon. So true, right? 
But how do we understand these differences? So let's see, what does, let's talk about it in our personal lives. It'll be easier to understand and reflect it back to the cosmic uh, entities called the, the sun and the moon. The sun is that hot ball, always filled with warmth, passion, radiance, and heat. And a radiance that it not only possesses in itself, but its dazzling radiance, it projects, and it projects throughout all hours of the day. We're enjoying it at this very moment as the rays of the sun, even in the rainy weather, make their way into our tent and illuminate our mornings. Especially before Thomas Edison gave us the light bulb, it was the sun that cast its light on the planet exclusively. And it's still the sun that gives us day. In Chelem, they once had a debate, what is more important, the sun or the moon? And after seven days of debates, they concluded that the moon was far more important. And they said, because the sun shines during daytime, who needs it? But it's the moon. It's the moon that shines during the night, and therefore we owe special appreciation to the moon. The sun is so good that we don't even appreciate it. We take the sun for granted. And you know how often we make a bracha for the sun? Once in 28 years we make a bracha for the sun. For the moon there's a bracha every month. For the sun once in 28 years. Now why once in 28 years is not for now? Because you're really going to get a headache. (laughs) The previous headache won't even come close to the future headache of the once in 28 years. But there's a reason why it's once in 28 years. As to with the equinox, etc. But we take the sun for granted. But what does the sun represent? So the sun represents a certain wholesomeness. And the sun is wholesome. The sun is perfect. The sun is the perfect ball that orbits around our planet or our planet orbits around it. And therefore every 24 hour period, wherever you are in the world, you get your daytime. Whether it's 12 hours of day or 14 hours of day or 10 hours of day, but you get your daytime. That depends, of course, on spring or, or autumn or summer or winter, the length of the day and the night. But we get our hours. And during those hours, we have our night, our light, and we have our warmth. Of course, you can't compare summer to winter. And this year, you don't even know when summer and winter is. We thought it was summer, then it's winter. Back to summer, back to winter. We'll see what happens. So, the sun really represents the predictable, wholesome pattern of life. What about the moon? The moon represents the struggle of the moon, which literally waxes and wanes and then suddenly disappears completely. So the moon goes through stages. There's moments that the moon reflects the light of the sun beautifully. There's moments that the moon reaches a point where you look at the moon and you're like, wow, what wholesomeness, what perfection. And you almost want to invest in that stock. And you do. Only to see that a few days later it's like, whoops. Sorry, I'm in the abyss. And then, for two days, the moon disappears completely. It just doesn't show up. Doesn't doesn't return calls. Doesn't return texts. Doesn't respond to emails. You don't see it. You think it died. And then out of the blue, suddenly, the moon emerges. Rebirth. But even when the moon is shining, it's not its own light. 
It's reflecting somebody else's light. The moon never reaches a point where it feels, I own my light. It doesn't. It always needs the sun for light. The sun creates its own source of light. The moon doesn't create its own source of light. It reflects somebody else's source. And therefore, sometimes it reflects it more, reflects it less, and sometimes it reflects it nada, nothing. So now I ask you, what are you? Are you a sun or are you a moon? We even have a word in English for certain types of people. We call them lunatics. (laughs) The word, (laughs) it's not a joke by the way. You could check it up. Where do you think the word lunatic comes from? Luna, lunar. It's the moon. Not the sun. Why? The sun represents stability, persistence, consistency. The sun doesn't get into moods. The sun doesn't get into depression. The sun doesn't have swings. The sun doesn't go from one extreme to another extreme. The sun doesn't look at you and say, what's your name? I never met you before. The sun doesn't disappear. The sun is reliable. Consistent. Every day. The moon is consistently inconsistent. The only thing we know about the moon is that we don't know what to expect. The Gemara says, Shemesh Yoda Mevoye. It says in Barchinavshi in Tehillim 104. The sun knows its pathways. Ask the Gemara, only the sun. Gemara says, yeah, Yoreach Lo Yoda Mevoye. The moon does not know its pathways. Actually, even astronomically, the orbit of the moon is far more complicated and complex. When I say consistently inconsistent, it wasn't just a cliche. It is consistently inconsistent. Where the sun is uniquely consistent. Its orbit, or the way we experience its orbit, is extremely consistent. And thus, you have very different types of personalities, very different types of creatures. In fact, it becomes very exciting when you have a sun who's married to a moon. Or a moon who's married to a sun. That usually works together. When you have a sun married to a moon, I think it's a moon married to a sun. But not always. Because the moon sometimes can disappear from a relationship. Which is when it becomes very painful. Because the challenge is not so much that you're a moon. The challenge is that you don't acknowledge that you're a moon. And when you don't acknowledge that you're a moon, and you don't take responsibility for being a moon... And then when you start blaming the sun, when you start blaming the sun, now you enter into an impossible relationship. The sun is a sun and the moon is a moon. The sun can't be blamed for the moon, just like the moon can't be blamed for the sun. It's very different orbits, very different cycles. So you know, you all know, you all, some of you know, You have the husband who texts you, I'm leaving the office in three minutes. And you know that in two and a half minutes, he already left the office. In fact, you could almost adjust your watch to his motions. And then you have the husband who says, I'm leaving in three minutes. And what he means is, in approximately three hours, I will start thinking about the concept of leaving the office. So yes, he's not lying. In three minutes, the process is going to begin. There will be meditation about leaving. There will be thoughts about ending the night. There will be thoughts about coming out. It may take seven, eight hours. But that's just the process. 
different people. Some people, the flight to 7 o'clock p.m., the suitcase is packed two days earlier. Some people even do practice packing. Do you know such people? I know such people. A week before the trip, they do practice packing to make sure everything fits. And if not, they have time to order a suitcase. They have time to go to therapy. They have time to reevaluate their packing techniques. They have time to reevaluate the types of clothes they're going to need at the vacation. Because every meal is a different outfit. It's, I don't have to explain to you the complexities of packing. That's called practice. And then there's those of us who were still packing in the car on the way to the airport. You come running out with the shirts, with the hangers, and you're busy zippering, breaking zippers, opening zippers, and you're trying to find a box in the airport. You ask the person working there, can I have a box? No, we don't give boxes. You're supposed to have boxes a month ago, you're supposed to get boxes. Different people. They're always on the runway. They run on the, today they don't let you go on the runway. In the olden days, they're still out of breath. They're always the people running to the gate out of breath. And then there's people already sitting on the chair over there for four and a half hours. They're sitting. They went to sleep there last night. Al-Hasafik. Al-Hasafik is going to be traffic in the morning. They went to sleep last night there. Very interesting people. Interesting people. Who would you like to be? Who would you like to be? Which one? Okay, but now the, the right. So it's e- it's very easy for the sun to cut off the moon, and it's easy for the moon to cut off the sun. It's easy for the sun to look at the moon and say, "You're a lunatic." Pun intended. Go to your lunar family. Don't come into my life. And it's easy for the moon to look at the sun and say, "You're boring. You're lifeless. You're too consistent for me. You're rigid." There's no art by you. There's no creativity. No drama. No romance. No spunk. No spontaneity. Come on. Chill out. Relax. Get depressed a little bit. (laughs) But if you don't know how to get depressed, how are you going to know how to dance? (laughs) How are you going to feel the experience of rebirth? How? You're too consistent. I mean, you're reliable, but who wants reliable people? You want living people. I mean, Mark Twain said before he dies, he wants to move to Manchester. Because the the transition from there to death won't be noticeable. (laughs) Now, I have nothing against Manchester. I love Manchester very much. I visit Manchester often. But when I came the first time to Manchester, one of the rabbis in Manchester, this was his welcome to me. I said, really? And you live here? He says, that's exactly, I wanted to tell you where I live. So I'm not saying this about Manchester. I know nothing about Manchester. Some people say these things about certain parts of Muncie too. But the point is, it really depends on the individual. Some people have a philosophy that it's easier to make believe you died already. Because that way you just get rid of a lot of issues. You don't have to think, you don't have to be, you don't have to live, you don't have to feel. And some people have another philosophy. So... You have your very two different personalities. They're not supposed to work together, really. It's easy for them not to work together, which is why most calendars don't match them together. It doesn't make sense. You don't put a sun and a moon together. They will drive each other mad. One will become a lunatic, and the other one will probably burn them up or just retreat into its own orbit, literally. Yes, and you see it. Him, it takes 29 days, and him, it takes 365 days. It's very different experiences. In Judaism, however, we synchronize the two. 
In fact, we can't have our calendar if we don't continuously work on synchronizing the two. But it doesn't come easy. Our calendar is always reinventing itself continuously to make the adjustments. There's never a situation where we could just fix it and it works. It doesn't work. You always have to reinvent it and reinvent it again and again and yet again every two, three years, manipulating, dealing, adding, subtracting in order to make the two orbits synchronized, synchronize them, hot sync them as we say. Why is it so important? It's critically important because life is not the sun or the moon. Life is about a journey that includes the orbit of the sun and the orbit of the moon. In fact, the lunar personality must be able to find within him or herself the stability of the solar system. And the solar personality must be able to find within himself or herself the chaotic creativity, ups and downs and fluctuations of the lunar system. Each one has its tremendous virtues and its vices. The great tragedy is when you can't acknowledge the vice in the orbit that you're dealing with or the virtue in the other orbit. Because then you completely cut yourself off from healing, from expanding your horizons. But here is where the moon starts crying. And the moon says it's not fair. It's not fair. The moon who is the one who feels needy. Let's take this one. It's not just about consistency or lack of consistency. It's two types of personalities. There is that person who just has that self-confidence. You just have it. And then there is the moon who always, there's a need, there's a void, there's a yearning. I need somebody, I need, I need to reflect light. I need to attach myself to the sun to give light. Basically, the moon is always feeling that it has a void. It never reaches a state of perfection. It never says, I got it. At best, it can say, it got me. But never, I got it. The moon is never in a position where it could just sit down, relax, and say, I have it all. The moon always knows, as the Zoyar says, lay slum migar maklum. She has nothing of her own. Nothing of her own. When she looks in the mirror, you know what she sees? Dark gray matter. That's what she sees. And she knows even on the 15th night, when all of the earth comes out and says, wow, what a beautiful moon. She knows that in two or three days, it's all gone. And in a few more days, there's nothing present anymore. Nothing conspicuous. What does this do to identity? It creates a question mark on identity. It creates the void. It creates the yearning. I'm always seeking. I always have to grow. I can never take existence for granted. If I take existence for granted, I'm left with nothing. If I decide one day I have my own light, all I'll discover is darkness. I'm always looking where the sun is. What do we say in Nishmas? Ve'einenu me'irois, you remember? If our eyes would be as luminescent as the sun and the moon. Why both? One second. The entire light of the moon is from the sun. Our eyes would be as bright, as luminescent as the sun and as the moon. 
What is the meaning of this? Both are said, but there's a contradiction here. The moon doesn't have its own air. If you tell, you know, they say that there was a teacher in a yeshiva and he said once, if I had Rothschild's money, I would be richer than Rothschild. Why? Because I wouldn't quit my teaching job. I wouldn't quit my teaching job, you understand? I grew up in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. Like in every good Jewish community, you have a lot of schnorrers. You know what a schnorrer is, yeah? Somebody who got a PhD in fundraising from Harvard University. So there was one fellow, I knew him, he's already on the Oilam Ha'emes, he would come every day, somebody who collects. Somebody once asked him, what would you do if you won the lottery? What would you do? You know what his answer was? He says, I would put a guard at every door of shul so that no other beggar should be allowed in besides me. That's what I would do. Or a famous fundraiser said, if you can speak to the mayor and get an appointment, what are you going to ask him for? And he said, I'm going to ask him to put elevators in all the buildings. I don't have to climb up the steps to go fundraising. People come from their own perceptions of life. And even when they think about royalty and aristocracy and broadness, it's always based on the narrow perception of poverty. Do we do this to ourselves psychologically and emotionally and spiritually? Why both? If you already have the light of the sun, trust me, you have the light of the moon. The light of the moon is only a, a glimmer. It's a fraction of the reflection of the light of the sun. Why do you say both? So we have two completely different experiences in life. The moments that I feel I have and the moments that I feel I don't have. Now, now, which is big? And which is small? Which is big and which is small? What's considered your great moment and what's considered your small moment? Ah. Depends. Depends from God's perspective or from our perspective. From Hashem's perspective, Shnei Ma'oiris Hagdoilam. They're both great. There's no difference between the sun and the moon. Each one is as great as it needs to be in order to fulfill its mission and its journey in the world. Yes, the sun has its journey and the moon has its journey, but that doesn't make the sun any greater than the moon. It makes the sun different than the moon. Sometimes you're great by being great, but sometimes you're much greater by being small. Sometimes you're great by feeling, I have it. But sometimes you're much greater by feeling the yearning, the frustration. It creates the catalyst for growth. Sometimes you're much greater, I'm much greater when I have the anxiety, when I have the frustration that I need to rediscover my life. I need to reinvent myself. I need to open myself up to new horizons. They say, why did the Chinese survive for 5,000 years? Because, you know Mandarin, anybody? You know Mandarin also? (laughs) Okay, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. But I was in China, and they taught me that the same character, you know how the Chinese read words? The same character they use for the word crisis, they use for the word opportunity. Same character. But in Lashon Kodesh in Hebrew, it's much better. 
What's the word in Hebrew for a breakdown? Modern, even modern Hebrew, what's the word for a breakdown? Mashber. What does mashber mean in Lashon Kodesh? A birthing stool. A birthing stool. Breakdown birthing stool? That's how Jews survived 5,000 years. They understood every mashber is really a birthing stool. Every mashber is an opportunity for rebirth. This is the moon. The moon has a moilad. The sun never has a moilad. The sun is never reborn. The sun never died in order to be reborn. To be reborn, you have to die. So I ask you, is this death, death or life? Depends from whose perspective. From my perspective, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's a crisis. It's a breakdown. I don't know if I'm coming. I don't know if I'm going. You just, I discover one day, I didn't know what it means to be a father. I didn't know what it means to be a husband. I didn't know what it means to be a human being. I didn't know what it means to be a Jew. You think it's easy to discover that? And of course, naturally, we love blaming the sun when we discover that. It's not me. It's not me. It's you. We love doing that. The moon never does that. The moon says, I am going to take my crisis and I'm going to create from it Rish Chodesh. I'm going to create for it a new holiday. And you know whose holiday is Rish Chodesh? Because the whole, it says the Arizal says, the Balatanya says, the whole biological makeup of feminine energy reflects this process. So sometimes when we feel so down, empty, you feel the void. From Hashem's perspective, How do you know what's great and what's small? How do you know what's great, what's small? We live in a world where we love polarities. We love saying, he's normal, he's meshuga. He's great as toit meshuga. She I can get along with thee, don't even begin. This is a sun, this is a moon. This is lunar, and this is normal. This is a good boy, this is a bad boy. This is a great girl, this is... We love such a world. Stable. Clear, cut. Really, how do you know? How do you know what's great? How do you know people's journeys? How do you know what their soul is made up of? How do you know what they go through internally? How do you know where they have to reach? How do you know? You know what's great and what's small. Stigmas always come from deep ignorance and from a lack of appreciation of a larger picture. Take children in a family. We love looking. This child a success. This child a failure, really? What's success? What's failure exactly? We spoke, you remember, about Yaakov and Esav in the womb. One is gravitating towards the base Medrash. One is gravitating towards Avodah Zarah. Yitzchak should have looked at Esav and said, Mr. Failure. Yaakov, Mr. Success. But Yitzchak had a different perception. Because the failure of Esav was not that he gravitated to Avodah Zarah. The failure of Esav was that he thought he was a failure for gravitating to Avodah Zarah. Did you hear what I just said, women? His failure was not that he gravitated to Avodah Zarah. That was his journey. That was his divine journey. His failure was that he thought he was a failure for the fact that he couldn't be like Yaakov. He couldn't. I don't know what's great and I don't know what's small. What looks to me as great could be small. What looks to me as small could be much greater than I'll ever imagine. My moments of voids, my moments of, of my downers, what do they call them? Downers. Do I know that they are not as great as my uppers? 
Maybe those are most important moments in my life, the moments that I'm reborn, the moments that I can discover, the moments that I become vulnerable, the moments that I actually dis- decompose and disintegrate, and my ego goes out into the dustbin, and I can reinvent myself from a place of truth and wholesomeness. That's not great. There was a Jew who came to the Baal Shem Tev, and he tells the Baal Shem Tev, I want to see Elio Anovi, I want to see Prophet Elijah. Baal Shem says, you really don't need it for your life. He says, please, please, I'll do anything. And after begging, the Baal Shem Tev says, I'll tell you a system of avoida, a system of spiritual work that you have to follow for 10 years. If you follow it for 10 years, you'll reach where you want to reach. And for 10 years, imagine... <laughs> This is not only, a, imagine a diet for 10 years, not for like two and a half days or two and a half hours. Today, a diet, two and a half hours, you lose 40 pounds and then you start eating again. <laughs> imagine a diet for 10 years. But what about a spiritual diet for 10 years? But he does it. He follows the path that the Baal Shem Tev formulated for him, and after 10 years, he did not see Eliyahu enough. And he comes running back to the Baal Shem Tev and he says, I feel like such a loser. Ten years of Ten years I worked and worked, I toiled with sweat and blood, and I accomplished nothing, I achieved nothing. Hashem says, "Why do you say you achieved nothing? You became a humble human being. That's not an achievement. Yes, you learned that you worked for ten years and you didn't see Leo Hanavi. You became a humble human being. You became a mensch. There's somebody to talk to. I'm not speaking to a la-la land, delusionary uh, dreamer who thinks he's a saint. He's going to wake up in the morning and say, Leo, another, yeah, you worked for 10 years, you realized you're human. You got rid of your spiritual masks that you're wearing a whole day and a whole night. I'm speaking to a real person. He's not a saint. He's not dancing and thinking he's an angel. And at any moment, the water is going to pour on his head and somebody's going to scream from heaven, Kaddish, Kaddish, Kaddish. And he'll fly away and tell his wife, you see, I always told you I'm holy. You could look at him, they say in Hebrew, Begovainayim. You know what I mean? Lidaberito Begovainayim. How do you say that in English? Eye to eye. That's not an achievement, that you became human. You're real, you're authentic, you're raw, you're beer. That's sometimes the greatest accomplishment. There's somebody to talk to. Baal Shem Tov said, don't say you didn't achieve anything. You didn't see Eliyahu. Maybe you saw something even greater. You found your own self, your own humanness. Sometimes that's greater. It's not about if I could see Eliyahu or not. It's about me fulfilling the purpose of my existence. Me being loyal to the journey of my soul. Me casting my light onto the world. I can't cast your light onto the world. You can't cast my light onto the world. I can cast my light. On the contrary, by you casting your light, you help me project my light onto the world and onto myself. By Yigdalu Anarim, different children. This is what we spoke about, told us with Yaakov and Esav, you remember at length. But this was the same concept. So from Hashem's perspective, they're both great. They're both equally great. Not that they're equal, but they're both great. They're both G'doylem. What's the definition of a godel? We love that word. What's the definition of a godel? What makes somebody a godel? That you have a better IQ than me? What makes you a godel? That you're more antisocial than me? That you're a bookworm and I'm not a bookworm? Does it make sense that a child who has a lower IQ and happens to be very socially active, he can never be a godel? Because he can't concentrate so much. That's not what a gadol is. A gadol is 
somebody who lives the life that God wants him or her to live, you can't be a greater guddle than that. In fact, if you start emulating somebody else, you become a katan. It was once by the Seder of the Tzemach Tzedek, they were doing yachatz. You know what yachatz is? That's a moment that a lot of from Jews get social anxiety, existential anxiety. Because you have to break the matzah, and one has to be bigger than the other. Do you know about that crisis at Jewish tables? You never saw it? You're sleeping already. Okay, I understand. It's been a long era of Pesach. You should come to a hotel. So, <laughs> I'm just joking, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Stay home. The best Seder is at home. But you take yachatz, you take yachatz, you remember you break the matzah, yeah, and one has to be bigger than the other. And for many people, this is a crisis. It's an existential crisis. I know people who are mamish have anxiety. That and how long to eat the kazayas between those two? Oh my God. I know a guy who had a stopwatch set up by his Seder Shal Pesach because of Achilles Pesach. He had a heart attack on the spot. Okay, whatever. I'm not now getting into all of this. I'm not getting into We have to heal. We have to heal. We have to heal from anxiety. We have to be able to celebrate things. But uh, So this yachatz is like a very big thing. And uh, the next year, somebody's opening up a company where they're going to have matzah that comes with a little line so that you don't have to work hard on breaking it in the right spot. Okay, so copyright my idea, so please give me a commission. So now, so this guy does yachatz, and he's measuring which is bigger, which is smaller. The Tamach Tzedek says these words, A gadol vas medafe mestin is ken gadol nisht. A gadol which you have to measure is not a gadol. If you have to start measuring and comparing, he's not a gadol. Gadol means great. I don't know. God says, what's gadol, what's katan? You say the sun is great and the moon is small. From my perspective, the sun has what it has only because I gave it to it. I gave it to the sun. And the moon doesn't have what, it's ha- what it has because that's what I want for the moon. The moon achieves its spiritual perfection through imperfection. And the sun achieves its spiritual perfection through its perfection. So who says imperfection is not perfect? Who decided that? That's a very narrow perspective. Imperfection is another form of perfection. Imperfection is another form of greatness. Smallness is another form of greatness. And sometimes it has a greatness all its own because it's the imperfection that creates the deepest awareness the deepest growth, the deepest creativity, the deepest rebirth. There was a Jew, he passed away recently, Rebbe Eliezer Hakoyan, some people call him Leonard, and he once said, when I was young, I worshipped perfection. Now I'm older, I search for things that have cracks, because it's the cracks that allow the light to come in. You see, things that are perfect, they're not cracked, but no light comes in. It is what it is. It's self-contained. It may be the source of light, but it can't allow the light to come in. How can you give the sun light? The sun says, I got all the light in the world. The moon is cracked. Look at the moon, you'll see that it's cracked. It doesn't even know what it looks like. Depends on the day. Come back in an hour. I'll take my coffee, I'll feel better. That's what the moon says. Come back tomorrow night. I'll be in a better mood. Tonight I'm a sliver. Tomorrow night I'll be... Come back in a few days. We'll talk. I can't go out tonight. I need two weeks. The sun never has a problem. The sun burns you up when you get close. 
And the moon says, why don't I have any friends? There's the light of the sun and there's the light of the moon. And each one has a different eye. And we all know that there's something special about moonlight. Even though you could be a technical scientist and say, please, there's nothing special about it. It's a reflection of the sun. But somehow, greater poetry has been written when you're sitting by a bonfire and looking at moonlight than when you take off your glasses and stare at the sun. There's a certain poetry to it. There's a music to it. There's a resonance to it. Yes, we could say it's our imagination, and I'm sure part of it is, but this is the energy of the Yerayach. So from Hashem's perspective, they're both great, equally. But here's the catch. Can the moon ever experience God's perspective? (laughs) If the moon would experience itself from Hashem's perspective, then what would be? It would never be a moon. It would be a sun. If when I'm feeling a void, all I would feel is that this is another form of perfection, would I be able to feel a void? I would never feel a void. If when I'm experiencing my own downfall, my own breakdown, my own challenge, all I can feel is this is really the voice of perfection in me. I would never be able to experience what I'm experiencing and therefore by definition it wouldn't be perfection anymore. What makes imperfection perfection is that it's imperfect. But if I would feel that imperfection is perfect, it wouldn't be imperfect anymore and then it wouldn't be perfect. It would actually become perfect. It would become imperfect because it would feel that it's perfect. You're with me? You're not with me? You're too perfect for me. You want perfect sentences, but these sentences are not perfect. I'll say it again. If imperfection would be able to feel how perfect it is while it's imperfect, would it be able to experience imperfection and therefore grow from it? You would feel on top of the world. The whole growth of the moon is that it disappears, it disintegrates, it wanes, it loses itself. And in the loss, it gets reborn. Think about it emotionally. If in those moments you're going through a difficult, difficult period, if you would be able to see it from a higher perspective and just see that it's really the beginning of of tremendous clarity, then it wouldn't be the beginning of tremendous clarity because you would become pompous in that moment. For the seed to morph into a tree, what happens to it? You take the seed of an apple tree, you plant it in the earth, for it to develop, and grow into a splendid, beautiful, tall, delicious apple tree. What has to happen to the seed? It decomposes. It experiences decadence and rotting. When the seed rots, it looks at itself in the mirror. And what does it tell its therapist? I'm nothing. I used to be a beautiful seed on the windowsill. Everyone looked at me and they said, he's so cute. And now I'm rotten, but not garnished. And that is what allows the seed... Not to be a seed, but to become a giant tree. That moment that allows it. It's the moment of frustration. It's the moment of loss. It's the moment of decomposition. But the moon could never know this. Because if the moon would experience it, it wouldn't be able to be a moon. It would be another sun. For the moon to be able to experience being a moon, it has to go through its own dance. And its dance is a dance that has tears and laughter. It has loss and it has birth. It waxes, it wanes, and it waxes again. It becomes wholesome, but it disappears. So the moon starts complaining to Hashem. The moon says, it's not fear. I want to be the sun. 
So what is Hashem going to say? So Hashem says, the Jewish calendar is based on you. We'll never ignore you. You are part of our process. The, moon, the sun also has its place. So he says, Yaakov is a moon. David is a moon. All great giants had to go through the process of being moons. There's nobody in the world who achieves real greatness if they have not had deep moments of personal crisis. You will not find that in the world. Why? Because people who never fail ultimately never really grow. They only attempt to do things that they know they'll be successful. And whenever you don't fail, it means you only try to do things that you're good at. And if you only try to do things you're good at, and that's why you don't fail, you will always end up doing things that are limited to what your capability is today. You will never flex your muscles and figure out who you really are. To figure out who I really are, I have to take risks. I sometimes have to feel that I'm walking on a tightrope. What did Reb Nachman say? What do they sing? Kol olam kulo geshet It's a narrow bridge. The Yerushalmi says, on one side is fire, on one side is ice. You go to the right, you get burnt. You go to the left, you freeze. Two sides. It's a very narrow bridge. The path to greatness goes through tremendous crisis. You have to reinvent yourself again and again and again and again. Yaakov, David, both of them. David HaMelech. David HaMelech was seen as an illegitimate child. Ki'avi ve'imi azavuni. He was thrown away by his father. He was seen as a mom's. His brothers wanted to kill him. And then he suddenly becomes a king. Even ma'asu aboinim. Haisa pina. The stone that the builders detested became the rosh pina, became the cornerstone. But there had to be Evan Masu Abainim that was said about David Amalekh. And the moon says, God, I don't know what you're talking about. It's all nice. It's nice chizuk. You live my life. And stop giving me your chizuk. And at the end, you know what Hashem says? Who is the one who ultimately created this whole drama? Who is the one who created the dance? Who is the one who created the story of life that we call life? It's me. I am the one ultimately who created this. Because really God is perfect. But the story of life is, the story of life is, open your hearts, that perfection created imperfection to reveal the perfection in the imperfection. Unity created fragmentation to be able to reveal the oneness in the fragmentation, to be able to reveal the harmony in the compartmentalization. So I am the one who ultimately allowed for this dynamic, for these two perspectives. Every month, bring an atonement for me for diminishing the moon. The moon is the moon. The moon is as perfect as the sun, but the moon doesn't experience itself that way. The moon experiences pain. The moon experiences agony. The moon experiences loss. The moon experiences confusion, uncertainty. The moon feels every month again and again that it's derailed. Bring an atonement from me, because I am ultimately the one responsible. The buck stops here. But the Jewish calendar will never be about the sun or the moon. It will be about the appreciation of the journey of the sun and the appreciation of the journey of the moon 
And with our leap years, the moon will sometimes get ahead of the sun. And sometimes the sun will naturally get ahead of the moon. And it takes 19 years to synchronize them. So now you understand Matanus Lev Yoinim? You thought I forgot about it, yeah? You thought I forgot, your mom thought I forgot about it. I know, moons forget, I know that. <laughs> but sometimes I try to be like a sun also. So. Not, I'm not always the moon. Sometimes I'm the moon, but not always. Can I tell you a story? It's one of the most amazing stories you'll ever hear in your life. I know the hour is late, but I can't, when I talk about this, I can't not tell the story. I heard it from the person that happened with. You know, there are stories and there are stories. There are stories that are beautiful stories and there are stories that are uh, game changers. They challenge paradigms that are very deep. I have an older brother, his name is Simon. I have an older brother, 16 years older, whose name is Simon, Rabbi Simon Jacobson. And uh, he gives a weekly class in Manhattan for many, many years. And he shared this with me some time ago, a few years ago. It's a class for mostly secular Jews that he's been doing, I don't know, since the early, probably almost, uh, I don't know, 30, almost 40 years probably. Every week, Wednesday night. He told me one night, the class... He starts giving the class, and a person shows up at the class. A young man, he saw immediately that the person has physical disabilities. It was hard for him to walk. It was hard for him to carry himself. His motor skills were compromised. The man sat down, listened, continued to come for months without saying a word. After a few months, he felt comfortable enough, he came to speak to my brother. And he shared with him his story. When he was born, around three decades earlier, the doctors immediately observed a very serious neurological defect. They told his parents about it and explained that there would be no hope for full recovery. He would have to need constant, constant care and help for verbal skills, motor skills, communication skills, and some other, quite a few other skills to be able to function well. His parents, Jews, living in Manhattan, very wealthy and high-profile people, felt that this would seriously uh, impede their lifestyle. You know, they were party-goers, they were dinner-goers. Manhattan, it's a whole different style there. And this would be a whole different life sentence that they didn't expect. And they did not take him home from the hospital. They put him up in an institution that would care for him. And he tells my brother that he never met his father. He never met his mother. Almost 30 years old. Where do they live, my brother said. He says, they live in Manhattan. They live, I have the same last name. They're, they're high profile. I mean, people know them. He says, you never wanted to meet them? He says... Looks like they don't want to. They never came to visit. But every week they send up, every month they send a big check. So he says, I have what I need. And I can get jobs according to my capacity. My brother was naturally very moved by the story. And he told me that this young man was extremely intelligent and very, very sensitive. And he had a spiritual depth that was incredible. 
he really met, he told me he really met a person with such depth, like a depth of understanding, I mean, after what he's been through. So he decided to do what a good Jew does, mix into other people's business. <laughs> he searches for the telephone number of the father, he calls up the father. He calls up the father, you know, it's not an easy telephone call to make. He wanted to hang up a hundred times before the father picked up the phone, but he mustered the courage. And he tells the father, my name is so-and-so. There's somebody who's been coming to my class for a long time now. And he's an incredible person. He happens to be your son. I think you would enjoy meeting him. Boom! The phone hung up on him. He thought it was a mistake, you know. He calls back again. Well, he wanted to think it was a mistake. And the man as he said, didn't I make it clear to you, I don't want to talk to you. Don't mix into my life. He waited some time. He phoned again. The man said, I do not want to talk to you about this. This is really none of your business. And my, my brother tells him, don't you feel it's right for him to be able to meet his parents and for you to meet your son? Stop mixing into our lives. It wasn't a comfortable response. He waited some time and he called the mother. He thought a father is a father, a mother. A mother, what do we call it? Ayyidah you know, the heart of a mother will melt. He calls the mother, and the mother immediately starts crying. And she says, Listen, we made a decision 30 years ago. We're not about to rethink that decision. Sorry. Boom. She was nicer, but uh, he didn't get anywhere. He called her back and he said, Listen, I want, to th- I want you to think about something. There are kids who are orphans. They don't have mothers, they don't have fathers. Some don't have one parent, some don't have both. Their parents died. Wherever you meet them in the world, you'll see. If somebody tells them something about their parents, their face comes to life. They're always looking for information. Tell me about my mother, tell me about my father. They see a new picture, they're like, wow, this is what my mother looked like, this is what my father looked like. Because all their life they feel that there's something missing, they don't know where they come from. Children who are adopted often, they want to know, where, 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 who's my real father, who's my real mother? Now here you have an irony, you have a child who's alive, his father and mother live a few blocks away. They're both alive. He's 30 years old. Don't you owe him the right to show him who his mother and father are. And what is he asking for? He's not asking to move into your apartment, chas v'shalom. He's not asking for you to take care of him. He's not asking for you to change your schedule. Why can't you just meet? She says, you have to bring this up with my husband. He's dead. A year later, my brother is working on the husband and explaining all of this to him. And he picked up the phone, and finally, at last, he agreed to meet his son with one condition that my brother is going to be there. I guess he wanted what we would call a buffer zone. They meet Sunday afternoon in an apartment and a suite in a building looking over Central Park, which is where these people live. Mother said they went up in the elevator, he came with his boy. They went up, it was the top floor. It's a beautiful suite, huge. He said the view was literally breathtaking. It's hard even to imagine that in Manhattan is such a comfortable home. 
with so much space. It was breathtaking. It was something magnificent. Obviously, he understood they were quite affluent. They walk into the house. They sit down by the table. There's, of course, peanuts, cashews, almond nuts, chocolate. You know, Sunday afternoon, little snack on the table, water, juice. What are they talking about? Sunday football. This, the weather. Talking about everything besides anything. After 10 minutes, it wasn't going anywhere. Nobody was even looking at each other. Nobody gave anybody a look in the eyes. So my brother told me, he says, I realize that I have to really take initiative here. So I looked at the father, I looked at the mother, I looked at the boy sitting near me, and I said, okay, I know it's nice to talk about Sunday football, and it's very important, but let's uh, get to the chase. We're here for a reason. And he said the story, he said, this young man started to come to my classes. I got to know him. I was incredibly moved by his intelligence, his depth, his spirituality, his kindness, his sensitivity, and his sense of refinement. And I felt that you would be fortunate to see what type of soul your son is and to see how your son grew up. What a mensch he grew to be, despite all of his limitations and disabilities. What a beautiful human being he is. That's why I'm here. I wanted you should get to meet each other. There was tension in the room, as you can appreciate. My brother tells me, he says, these words. He says, the boy opens his mouth and speaks first. He looks at his mother and he looks at his father. He can't say the words mommy or tati because he can't pronounce those vowels. So he says instead, he says, mama, papa. Couldn't say pop or mom. He said, mama, papa. Looking at both of them. He says, you know, I was born imperfect. I'm not perfect. But so are you. You're also imperfect, mama and papa. I have forgiven you for being imperfect. I hope one day you'll be able to forgive me for being imperfect. And he was silent. My brother said his mother burst out in tears. She stood up, he stood up, and they hugged each other for a very long time. The first hug that he received from his mother and that she gave to her son. The father was pensive and quiet, but when his wife finished, he went up and hugged his son for a long time. My brother told me at that moment I felt like a shatchen after the chuppah, a matchmaker after the wedding ceremony. I looked at them. He said, and I said, I think I'll excuse myself now. Thank you very much. And he slipped out of the apartment silently, and the family was reunited. Those words of that boy is really what the Gemara is saying in this story. I have forgiven you for being imperfect. One day maybe you'll be able to forgive me for being imperfect. What is imperfection if not another form of divine perfection that we may not be comfortable with, but that's not what makes it imperfect? And I have to ask myself this question every day. I think we all have to ask ourselves this question. Have you forgiven your children for being imperfect? Really? Have you forgiven your parents for being imperfect? 
and maybe the hardest, have you forgiven yourself for being imperfect? Can you really forgive yourself? Can you forgive your child for being imperfect? Can I? Or I can't. I need you to be that perfect person. That is the one I will accept. Anything else I will not accept. And I'm not talking here externally. I'm talking internally, emotionally. I'm not telling, I'm not talking about what you say to people. I'm telling you what you say to yourself unconsciously. Do you really accept each one of your children? Do we really accept each one of our children? Or deep, deep down we know some of them are the great ones and some of them will tolerate. We're not going to put a bullet to their head. We are mothers, not fathers. (laughs) We'll make them cookies, but unconsciously I can't make peace with you. I will never make peace with you. And trust me, your child knows everything you're feeling unconsciously. I may not know what I'm feeling unconsciously. My child always knows what I'm feeling unconsciously. In fact, listen to your children's words and you will hear what you're feeling unconsciously. If you want a mirror to your unconscious, listen to your children's descriptions about who you are and who your spouse is. In fact, often unconscious feelings of mommy towards tati will be spoken consciously by the children who will speak about their tati reflecting what mommy feels about tati unconsciously or the other way around. Now this is humbling, I have to say. This is very humbling. Because otherwise intelligent parents, good parents, sophisticated parents, ehrliche parents, parents who sacrifice a life for children. I don't have to tell... Everybody sitting here about what mothers and fathers do for children. It's very humbling to be able to say, but I have not forgiven you. I have not accepted you. I have accepted the sun, not the moon. I can't make peace with the moon. The moon is too, too, the moon is too, too erratic, too imperfect, too troublesome. Or even worse, like, how did I end up with the moon? I'm such a son. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm such a... How did I end up? And by the way, when you start thinking it's a punishment for your sins, it sounds religious, but it's the worst. Because that means you're equating your child with sin, with punishment. Your child is God's wrath. You think you could forgive such a child? Never. That's why sometimes in the name of holiness we blame everything on our sins. It sounds religious. It sounds godly. It's one of the most ungodly things you could say to yourself or to anybody else. Because your child now becomes the devil. And I hate to say there's another religion who believes that people are devil incarnate. It's called original sin. And we often employ that with our own kids. You look at your kid and you say, ah, original sin. My original sin. That's the greatest one of the greatest spiritual tragedies when we attribute it to sin. I don't know people's journeys. We never know journeys. All year, we live in a world of polarities. We live in the world of the sun and the moon. And the moon is not the sun. The sun is not the moon. 
That's why we have this class. There is the wealthy and there is the poor. There's the person who has and the person who has not. There's the person who gives and there's the person who takes. It's financially the same. It's, it's true financially. It's true spiritually. It's true socially. It's true morally. It's true educationally. There's the teacher and there's the student. There's the father and there's the child. There's the mother and there's the daughter. There's the grandparent and there's the grandchild. There's the usher and there's the ani. There's the wealthy person and the poor person. And the Torah says that the wealthy person, don't close your hands, open your hands and give. That's the mitzvah of tzedakah. But now I ask you a question. How does the poor person feel? How does the person who doesn't have feel? And I'm not now talking about a manipulator. I'm not talking about a user. I'm not talking about a thief who uses people. I'm talking about somebody who's genuinely poor, not because always of their own choices or laziness at all. There are people who are successful, there are people who weren't successful financially, and they struggle. How do they feel? By definition, they feel a void. It's embarrassing, it's not easy to ask. It's not easy to ask for money. It's one of the most horrible, and honestly horrible, one of the most difficult experiences in the world. I don't know if anybody here is a fundraiser. Ask people who fundraise for their yeshivas, it's very, very difficult. And when it's for yourself, oh my God. It's not easy. There's a very deep void. There's something very, very heavily that's missing there. And therefore, I am the moon and you're the sun. And the moon comes to the sun and says, please give me. But David HaMelech says in Tehillim, Samach Beis, he turns to Hashem and he says, Yeshiv Oilam Lifnei Elikim Chesed Vemes Manyin Siru. So the Medrash says, David HaMelech told Hashem, Yeshiv Oilam Lifnei Elikim, why can't you make a normal world where everybody has? Why do some people have to have and some people not have to have? Karl Marx decided to create a world where everybody has not. Right? Churchill said, socialism is Communism is the equal distribution of misery. Capitalism is the unequal distribution of prosperity. But David HaMelech said, why the unequal distribution? Why not equal distribution? Great question. So Hashem answers, Chesed ve'emes man Who's going to preserve kindness and love in the world if there won't be an opportunity to give? Whoa, so let's understand this. From our perspective, he has and he doesn't have. He needs him. From Hashem's perspective, you know who's wealthy and who's poor. I have money because I'm better. I'm superior. God owes me something. This person doesn't have. Why? Because they're inferior to me. Because they're not as bright as me. That's the reason. It's the dance of life. God gives everybody an opportunity to be a mashpia and everybody an opportunity to be a makabal. There are things I must give and there are things I must receive. It could be money. It could be wisdom. It could be love. It can be clarity. And it could be billions and infinite things in life we all give, we all take. There's not one creation in the world that is not both a giver and a taker. And the taker gives as much as he gives, and the giver takes as much as she or he gives. Giving is another form of taking. When I give, I'm really taking. You who are receiving from me are giving me the opportunity to fulfill my mission. And I am giving you, I'm helping you fill your void, and you're helping me ultimately fulfill my mission. So what's the difference? 
This is arrogance. This is pompousness from Hashem's perspective. The sun is exactly like the moon. And the moon is exactly that the sun has as much as the sun. And this, the moon has as much as the sun has. And the sun has as much as the moon does not have. Everything the sun has is not its own. It comes from its source. And what the moon doesn't have is all part of the source's experience and plan and destiny so that the sun should be able to give and that the moon should be able to grow. In that sense, the moon is a giver and the sun is a taker and the moon is a taker and the sun is a giver. But the poor person can't feel this way. If the poor person felt this way, if the poor person really felt, I have everything... And the money that I'm supposed to get, it's really mine. It's just deposited in your bank account. Like it says in Svarim, when I give tzedakah, I'm not giving my own money. Part of my money, Hashem gave me as a deposit, as a bank, to be able to pass on to somebody else. But of course, if every poor person would feel that way, <laughs> and a poor person would come to your door and say, Hey, give me my money! Give me my money! You know how much people are going to give? Get out of my house. Of course I'm giving you. You should say thank you. That's the mode we live in. We live in a superficial world. Of course I'm giving you my money. You need my money. From God's perspective, maybe He's giving me an opportunity actually to be who I'm supposed to be. And actually I'm giving this person their money and I have a schus to do it. It's hard to see things that way. That's the world we live in. So we call it tzedakah, charity. That's all year around, besides one day. On Purim, we don't call it tzedakah. On Purim, we call it matanas la'avyayna. It's a gift. A gift? A gift I give to my wife. I give my mother. I give my sister. I give a best friend. They have given me things my whole life. I give back. What does this poor person give me? On Purim, when one reaches the state of adeloyad, meaning we go out of the regular conception of polarity, the giver and the taker, the one who has, the one who has not, the sun and the moon, as two separate entities. On Purim, one has the ability to be able to transcend Arur Haman and Baruch Mordechai. There's moments that I feel blessed and there's moments that I feel cursed. There's moments that I feel like Mordechai, there's moments I feel like Haman, there's moments that I'm perfect, there's moments that are imperfect. On Purim, Chayev, Inish, Lebesum, Lebesum, Which is why Purim happened in a leap year. What is a leap year? The synchronization, you remember? The synchronization of the sun and the moon. If that's the case on Purim, we don't call it tzedakah. We call it matonis lav I'm giving a gift. What am I getting in return? What do you mean what I'm getting in return? I'm getting in return the ability to be able to give. I need to be able to give as much as you need to be able to take. In fact, there's really absolutely no difference. It could have been exactly the other way around. Do I know why I ended up giving and you ended up taking? And do I know what the future is going to hold like? And do I know where my soul belongs to be and where your soul belongs? Do I even really know who's the giver and who's the taker? I don't know. I'm giving, of course I'm giving, but I'm equally taking your giving. I'm giving you a gift. A gift always means I got something from you before and I'm getting right now something from you. The very fact that I'm giving is your matana. The very fact that I'm giving you is a gift that's coming from you. On Purim, the consciousness can be elevated to a space where we could look at the world and see it from a divine perspective. Where perfection and imperfection 
are equal forms of perfection. And this concept of the sun and the moon is essential to the entire drama and purpose of existence. And understand, it doesn't begin with poor people and wealthy people. It doesn't begin with people who give charity and those who receive charity. This begins in the highest levels in Kabbalah, in Machshav, in Hasidis. This concept is seen in godliness itself. There's something called Zoh and Malchus. There's something called Mashpia and Makabal. In the divine energy itself, there are those elements that give and those elements that receive. There's what's called the light and the vessel, the ur and the keli, the giver and the taker. The entire drama of existence from the highest levels and divine energy operate in this process of give and take of mashpia and makabal. I give and you receive, you receive, you give and I receive. So you have teachers and students and parents and children, and then you have the sun and the moon, and each one is either a mashpia or a makabal, is a giver or a taker, and then it comes down all the way to the world of finances, where some people have more and some people have less, and we have the mitzvah of tzedakah. I ought to support and help those who are needy, those who are destitute. But the people down here who give and take, it could be traced back all the way up. All of the levels, because this is the very experience of life in the highest spiritual forms. There is the give and there is the receive. But a whole year, we live in a world of compartmentalization. We live in a world of polarities. And when I'm feeling a void, I feel the void. And when I need money, or I need wisdom, or I need inspiration, or I need guidance, or I need chizuk, or I need, I need perception, I need strength, I feel the fact that I lack, I need it, I yearn for it, I cry for it, I plead for it, I beg for it. And I come to you and I say, please help me. That's the process. That's what we call tzedakah. And then there's once a year Purim. And Purim, we don't call it tzedakah, we call it matana islav yoyna. What's the matana, as we said in the beginning? The Gemara says, matanta. A gift is reciprocal. I give you a gift because previously you gave something to me. It may have been tangible, it may have been less tangible. But a gift is a response to the goodwill that you have shown me to the point. It goes so far that there is a view in the Gemara that matana is like a mecher, it's like a sale. A gift has similarities to a sale. When you sell me an item, you sell me your car, it's because I'm giving you money for the car. You sell me a product in the store, it's because I paid you for the product. You are simply exchanging. I give you money and you give me an item. Now a gift is not exactly the same thing, but the very idea demonstrates to us that a gift is also you giving me something in return. That's not the case in regular charity. In regular charity, I am giving you, you're not giving me something in return. As a result, after I do the mitzvah, I get something tremendous in return. But on Purim, there is a new consciousness in the world. Purim, which is like Yoim HaKippurim, it says in Tikkunei Zoyer that Yoim Kippur, Yoim HaKippurim is like Purim. It's Achaz Bashana. It's one day of the year when the oneness is revealed. Achas Bashan. It's the day of Goyrul, Purim, Hua Goyrul, the day of lotteries, meaning Adeloyada, beyond the regular Das, beyond the regular conscious perception of the world, from a compartmentalized space where there are givers and there are takers, there are takers, there are givers. 
In Purim we get to see it from the divine perspective. On Purim we lift ourselves up to the world of Achaz Bashan, to the world of oneness, to the world of Ad Deloyad, to the world that is beyond Maidas, which sees everything in a polarized, compartmentalized fashion. On Purim I see the universe, I see the Jewish people, I see myself, I see the cosmos, I see Klal Yisrael from the divine perspective. There's no great luminary and small luminary. Rather, I see it as a singular process that the Rebbeinu Shalom established in existence that each of us has to receive and each of us has to give. And the receiver is as indispensable to the giver as the giver is to the receiver. Just as the receiver must have the giver because that is who he receives or she receives from, the giver equally needs to have the receiver in order to be able to fulfill his or her destiny, in order to be able to fulfill his or her mission in the world. It's a dance. It's a dance of Ratzay and Shav. You know how you dance? You come closer and you come further. Kiruv and Richuk. It's the dance of the Mashpiyah and the Makabal, but it's all part of HaKadosh Baruch Hu Oysa, Machay Tzadikim. It's all of a circular dance. There's no Maila and Mata. There's no really the one who has and the one who doesn't have. The one who doesn't have, has as much as the one who has. And the one who has, doesn't have as much as the one who doesn't have. And when I can sense that, I look at the poor person, I'm doing him a favor, I'm giving him a gift. But even before that, what a gift he's giving me. What a gift she is giving me. The gift of awareness, the gift to be able to have empathy, the gift to be able to fulfill God's will, the gift to be able to do my part in healing the world. Just your very presence gives me that gift. Before I even give the gift. And therefore I'm not giving charity, I'm giving a gift. The poor man gave me a gift and I'm giving him back a gift. We're giving each other gifts. He's giving me a matana, and he's giving me a naichel anafshi. He's giving me a certain serenity. He's allowing me to fulfill my role in the world. And I'm giving him back a gift. It's a gift. It's not charity. Matonis love you. And that's why we see something very interesting in the Rambam. The Rambam in Hilchis Megillah describes the matonis love you of Purim different than the regular tzedakah. The Rambam describes it as an act in which we are bringing simcha, we are bringing joy to the poor people. And that's why he says, if you have a choice between increasing Mishlayach Manas and Matanas Lavyainim, Matanas is should be given preference because, as he says, there's no simcha mufuara, there's no beautiful simcha like the simcha of giving joy to the poor person. Now, every time you give charity, you bring joy to the poor person. If he or she got money, they're joyous. But that's not the definition of tzedakah. The definition of tzedakah is giving him or her what they need. As a result, hopefully they'll be joyous. There's a concept in tzedakah called savor panim yafas. Do it with a smile. The Gemara says, Doing it with sensitivity, with empathy. Not with a sour face. This is to eliminate the shame. This is to eliminate the misery, to eliminate the aggravation. But it's in Hilchis Purim and Hilchis Megillah that the Rambam seems to say that the very definition of Matanas Lav is Simcha. You're giving joy to the poor person. 
So there is the joy of Purim that comes with the meal. There is the joy of Purim that comes with Shalach Manas. And the greatest joy the Rambam says is Matanas Lav Yainim. Why is this type of tzedakah directly associated with joy? Because it's a different type of tzedakah. Usually all tzedakah ultimately lacks a certain joy. The fact that I'm needy. The fact that I need you. And that's why the Yerushalmi says it's difficult for a person to eat bread of shame. Bread of shame means bread that you give me that I did not generate through my own work and revenue. It's embarrassing bread. It's not simch, it's not joy. It's a special effort to make me feel good about it. Not on Purim. On Purim we feel the oneness, we feel the equality. You're not giving me charity. You're giving me a gift. You know why you're giving me a gift? Because I gave you naichel anavsheh. I gave you something. So in that sense, I'm the wealthy man and you're the poor person. I gave you a sense of serenity. I gave you a sense of purpose. I gave you the ability to fulfill your destiny. We're all equal ambassadors in God's world, ambassadors of love, of light, of hope. Each one is doing our role. Don't take yourself so seriously. Don't become pompous. Don't become arrogant. Each of us is doing our role as an ambassador of Hashem in this world, I'm helping you fulfill your purpose. Just like you're helping me fulfill my purpose. And thus, in that sense, I'm wealthy and you're poor. And I'm wealthy even before you gave me the tzedakah. I'm wealthy in the fact that what we sense is a different type of relationship. And therefore, it's a tremendous simcha. The very fact that you could show the poor person that the fact that you feel the naichel nafshe, the pleasure that he is giving you, the privilege that he is giving you or she is giving you to be able to give, you show him that as much as he takes, he is equally giving. As much as he receives, he's equally bestowing. That itself is a tremendous simcha, is a tremendous joy in the drama of existence. And it's Purim that gives us the perspective that we can afterwards take throughout the year with us, how we treat those that we give to, how we look at those that we give to, how we make feel those that we give to. And remember, in all of life, there is what I can give and there is what I can receive. And remember, when you were given the privilege of giving, remember your ability, have the confidence, have the courage, have the fortitude, and have the spiritual sensitivity to be able to look the other person in the eyes and remind them that as much as you're giving them, they are giving you. This class was based on a talk that was delivered by the Rebbe, by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Purim Tovshin Lamed Aleph. Purim, 1971. Tovshin Lamed Aleph, yes. Have a happy Purim. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.